Hi there, this is Dot. Before we get started with today's episode, I want to do a little bit of housekeeping. I think most people who listen to this know who I am and that I work as a curator in a library. And I just wanted to make sure that everybody knows that this podcast is my personal podcast and doesn't have anything to do with my employer. This is just me and my friend having a fun, and it is related to my day-to-day work, but I'm not getting paid to do this. This is something I'm doing for fun. And I'm saying this both to make sure that everybody knows that if I say something stupid on my podcast, don't blame my employer because they don't have anything to do with it. But also, I don't want anybody thinking this is something that my employer is paying me to do because they're not, which is fine. I don't want to do this for work because it might be less fun if I did it for work. So that is all. And now I'm going to turn it over to the recorded episode. This is Dot. And this is Lindsay. And you are listening to Inside My Favorite Manuscript, the podcast where we talk to people who love manuscripts about the manuscripts they love the most. Today, we welcome manuscript scholar and curator Eric Johnson. Eric is Associate Professor and Curator of Thompson Special Collections at The Ohio State University, where he leads collection development for the manuscripts collections, as well as a few other collections, I think, and also teaches courses on manuscript studies and book history. Eric's research interests extend widely across the fields of medieval and Renaissance studies, codicology and bibliography, book history, the pedagogical uses of primary sources material in K-12 and university classrooms, and the digital humanities. He's particularly interested in fragmentology, which is an emerging subfield of manuscript studies invested in the reconstruction of medieval books and the recovery of their dispersed leaves. Uh, and I think that's relevant to what we're going to be talking about today. So I want to say again, welcome, Eric, to our podcast. And please tell us about the manuscript that we're going to be talking about today. Okay, thanks. Thanks for having me. This is this is fun. And it's nice to be able to talk about these things in a more informal way, because I'm usually like teaching about them in a very formal fashion. Yeah, so I am a fragmentologist, first and foremost, within the field of manuscript studies. And when you asked me about my willingness to do this. And I was immediately anxiety ridden trying to think about what my favorite manuscript is. And, and my, my mind was bouncing around back and forth. There are so many things here at Ohio State that I love, but there are also things that are digitally available in other collections that I really like that I could have talked about. And then I quickly realized that you wanted something a bit more informal. And if I chose a codex, I was going to wind up stressing out about like thinking about all of the different angles <laughs> no. that I might want to take. I was like... I don't want to do that. And anyway, my heart really does lie with fragments. And so my my brain pretty quickly turned to a pair of bifolia that I personally own. Um, I have a a small little collection of things that I've acquired over the years to to facilitate travel teaching. Mm -hmm. So I can take things along with me and not worry about risk management for diversity, things like that. Um, But I tend to really, really like kind of nasty fragments things that show lots and lots of use, imperfections, changes through through time, accretions, whether it's damage accretions or textual accretions, things like that. 
And in the end, I settled on two particular bifolia that I own, uh, one which is just a, a singular text. It's a, it's a missile, larger format, and then a small format, uh, late 13th century bifolium. It was the final two folia of a pastoral care treatise called the Sumula Conradi, attributed to a guy named Conrad Huckster, who was a, a German priest. And that particular bifolium is just beautiful chaos. And I, I absolutely so those are the two things that I wanted to talk about. I can dive into one or both immediately. I can talk a little bit about what attracted me to them. I'm not quite sure which direction you might want me to go first. So first of all, the everything that you said about signs of use and being messy, I love it. I love it. I love it. Man after my own heart. So I would like to know more, I think, about how you came by these. I'm particularly interested because they are they are yours, so they're not part of the university collection. Also, how the process of buying for your own collection versus buying for the university, how that's different and how it's the same. And also, why why these two, um, why these two bifolia in particular? And you might also explain what a bifolia is, because or a bifolium. Yes, yeah. So get that vocabulary out of the way first. So the basic constituent of any manuscript or any book is a bifolium. So a single sheet of paper or parchment that has been folded in half to create kind of a two folio or four page pamphlet. And text is then written on that. And then bifolia will be nested in all sorts of uh, ways, shapes and forms. It can be four bifolia, five bifolia, six bifolia. There's degrees of regularity, things like that. And then those are all stitched together and then sewn in to uh, onto supports to create kind of a full codex. So the bifolium is the basic constituent of any book in the codex format. And the ones that I have are, are really fascinating. They, they jumped out at me because, well, a couple things. Neither of them are the product of deliberate book breaking, at least in terms of like deliberate book breaking for commerce. These are textual leavings from manuscripts that were much loved, much used, and I presume just kind of fell apart over time. So they're chance survivals as opposed to deliberate cuttings for the commercial market. When you asked about collecting strategies, that is a very fraught thing, both personally and professionally for anyone who collects manuscripts, or at least it should be a fraught thing for anyone who collects manuscripts. For the university, for as long as I've been here, and I started at Ohio State in late 2008, really started building the manuscript collection out beginning in later uh, 2010. And we are not awash in cash. We have a, access to a lot more acquisitions money now than we used to because of substantial amount of effort I put in on the donor development front. Uh, but we still don't have a whole lot of cash, but we have an extremely active uh, manuscript studies program here at OSU. And so bang for your buck, you can get a lot of good teaching material for students on the fragment market. So we now have, I don't know, you know, exactly how it compares to other fragments around the country, but we're right around 1,400 or 1,450-ish individual folios, cuttings, binding fragments, things like that, that are loose coming from roughly about 470 original medieval codices. And it's a pretty substantial and diverse, wide-ranging teaching collection in terms of generic content, different formats, things like that. In addition to the loose collection, I'm in the process right now of trying to account for 
locate for, account, describe, et cetera, all of the in situ binding fragments. And we have more than 100 of those. Can you explain what an in situ binding fragment is? Yeah, so um, parchment is not cheap stuff never has been. It's very durable. So when a manuscript kind of outlived its original usefulness, a lot of times those pages or cuttings from what had once been complete manuscripts, they were cut down and then recycled as binding supports in later books. It could be other manuscripts. It could be early printed books. We actually at OSU have 19th century books bound in medieval leaves. So this was a a practice that was carried forward. And in fact, I can think of a couple modern antiquarian book dealers who on occasion will bind an old 16th or 17th century pamphlet and like choir book fragments that they have. So that kind of thing still goes on. But yeah, so in situ binding fragments are pieces of manuscripts in any shape or form. They could be really, really thin strips that are just used to help support the sewing of those pamphlets, those choirs into the book. They could be larger pieces of manuscripts that are pasted into the front cover to help protect the text block from rubbing up against the wooden covers of of the book. They can really be anything. And so in situ simply means they're still in the bindings in which they were originally incorporated once they were recycled. So we don't have a complete accounting of those yet at OSU, but we're working on that. I've had a couple of students do term-long projects on that and do surveys and things. So, but we've got, a, I think, probably close to 150 of those, I would think, but that's just an estimate. In terms of acquiring things, like you really have to, in my opinion, try to think as ethically as possible about how you're going to build a fragment collection. Is there all sorts of different grades and degrees of fragment? There can be those in situ things which should be left in place, but there are some dealers throughout history who have removed binding fragments uh, in order to basically maximize profits. They can sell the book, but they can also sell separately the binding fragments. So you want to be careful about that because breaking a binding, even though that binding is made out of all sorts of earlier manuscript fragments, to me, that's kind of a bibliographic crime too, because you're destroying the, the physical integrity of something historical. You need to watch out for that, but more typically, what I am really worried about are, uh, is buying directly and knowingly brand new breakings. Yeah, I don't know that anyone can really say how frequently this happens now, but there are a handful of dealers that I kind of regularly watch, not in any sort of like watchdog sort of way, but just kind of keeping track of things in, in terms of statistics who probably on average will break two to four or two to six manuscripts a year. These tend to be kind of lower end things, but still any medieval manuscript is absolutely precious, even if it is, you know, a bog standard book of hours. Every single one is unique. It's a manuscript. So try not to buy anything like that because that's just contributing to the idea of acquiring at auction or, or whatever and just breaking books. The next layer down is recognizing all of the commercial breakings. So the things that were broken for commercial profit and and separated and dispersed, but that are kind of deeper in the past. So thinking of someone like Otto Eggy, who was breaking manuscripts from the 1920s into the early 1950s, he and his his widow, you can't applaud what Eggy did. But at the same time, Eggy studies has become a major field of medieval manuscript studies. Yeah. And people left, right, and center are trying to reconstruct these manuscripts. And so there's this degree of permissiveness, I think, in terms of acquiring eggy leaves, because it's not the original breaker now who is benefiting from 
to say also that that is a kind of a complex thing in terms of the ethics of fragment collecting is like how many generations removed does a fragment right. have to be from its original breaker before it becomes okay to buy yeah as an example of how sort of i guess main mainstream or popular Ege studies are. Yale University just in the past couple of years, I think, acquired his, I guess, his papers, which include the remnants of some of the books that he that he broke. And when we say breaking books, what we're talking about is like taking a book and cutting the pages out and selling the pages individually, which is, as Eric as Eric said, like, this is something that people do now. In fact, just last week, I was talking to my colleague, Nick Herman, who is the curator of manuscripts at Penn, where I work. And he was saying that he found someone on eBay who was selling leaves from a book that was just bought at auction uh, last year, maybe. And of course, we went on about like how you know, how, how awful this was. And in a sort of bit of little bit of irony, we were actually going to a neighboring institution while we were having this conversation. We were driving to a neighboring institution here in near Philadelphia that has just acquired a new collection of leaves um, and fragments, which is sort of like interesting. But I think, as you say, like those are all older, you know, this is not new book breaking and I think this is one of the interesting things to me about fragmentology as a study is that it does have this sort of ethical aspect to it, thinking about, you know, how recent is this happening and how we can, if not applaud something that somebody did 100 years ago, we can sort of acknowledge it as a historical thing that happened versus the same thing happening now and and saying, no, this is a really bad thing and you should not do this. And you shouldn't buy these leaves if you know that they were acquired in this way. Yeah, and the, the, so the whole fragment issue institutionally at Ohio State is something that I take very seriously because in many ways, Ohio as a state can be seen as maybe the historical center of American manuscript breaking and dispersal. Otto Ege was operating out of Cleveland, but he also, I'll, I'll speak a little bit more about this in a second because it's a kind of an exciting find, but he operationalized his business in two principal ways. He had a business partner in New York City, Philip Dushnies, but he also marketed his leaves through the Lima Public Library. Lima, Ohio is northwestern part of the state. And the public library, beginning in the late 1920s, but really ramping up in the 1930s, got involved with Eggy in order to ostensibly help fund the Staff Loan Assistance Fund, which was this internal thing that the public library set up during the Depression to support library employees, their professional development, provide loans in cases of need, things like that. And over the course of Eggy's life, the public library dispersed thousands of leaves on his behalf. Last March, I was in Lima to meet with the, the director of the public library there and to take possession of about 76 eggy fragments that the public library has so that we could get them down to OSU, digitize them for them, et cetera. Uh, on my way out the door, I had asked if they might have more than the small handful of archival folders worth of records showing, you know, testifying to the relationship that Ege had with the public library. And he assured me that they didn't have anything else. But just as I was about to leave, he held up his keys and said, well, I don't know. I don't think we have anything, but do you want to go in the basement and look storage room? So it's like I learned a long time ago, anytime a librarian, a dealer, a private collector says, do you want to go in the basement? 
you do not question your basement. (laughs) I went down there and the first file cabinet drawer I opened had a black binder in it with whiteout on the spine that just said manuscripts. And I pulled it out and it was a period inventory list from right around 1951-52. And that was the first thing that specifically matched up Ege inventory numbers with specific manuscripts. As I continued to pull oh, wow. the file or, uh, cabinet drawer out, at the very, very back was a series of small ledger books that record the first sale of every fragment that circulated through Lima Public Library. So I've got a, an article that'll be coming out about this, and I've compiled all of the ledger book data into a data set that I'll be releasing for everyone's use. But basically what's really interesting about that is that we had known that the Eggy relationship with the Lima Public Library carried on till roughly about 1955. He died, I think mm-hmm. it was 1951. His widow carried on selling through the public library and, and other outlets. But generally speaking, we had known that it lasted until about 1955 and that the Lima Public Library circulated somewhere around 2,000 or 2,500 leaves. Well, the ledger books show us that the public library carried on selling leaves into 1976. Oh, my God. All told, over 4,100 leaves were processed through Lima Public Library. And the ledger books have the name, address, and itemized list of every leaf that was sold. The, The name and address of every buyer. So this is really, really exciting because, you know, most of these people are now long dead Mm -hmm. and leaves may not be at those addresses anymore. But for those of us who are interested in reconstructing these manuscripts for several thousand things, we now have first buyer for all of these leaves. So they were intact and then dispersed out. So that's really, really exciting. But so there's Eggy um, and his kind of Ohio-ness as a book breaker that saw, you know, all of these things broken. But then as we get into the later portion of the 20th century, beginning late 70s, by about 1980, an an Akron area antiquities dealer named Bruce Farini really started cutting up manuscripts on an industrial scale. And uh, he sold intact stuff, too. He wasn't just about fragments, but a lot of stuff got broken. And OSU in particular was a major, in quotes, beneficiary of that breaking because a lot of Farini's uh, business partners were part of, uh, long story short, and this is in an article that I wrote that was published in Penn's Journal Manuscript Studies back in 2019 on a Bible, 13th century Bible that I'm trying to reconstruct that Farini broke. But he was in cahoots kind of with a loose family network of donors who were making money with Farini by breaking manuscripts and selling a lot of the really good pages. But then rather than flooding the market with all of the in quote common text pages, they would donate those things en masse. So in in one case, there was a 14th century English Psalter. OSU got a component of that manuscript, but they also donated a portion of it to Cornell. So they were kind of farming things around and getting like commercial profit by selling on the one hand and then tax benefit on the other by donating. Right. So most of OSU's manuscript collection, when I started here, we had about 600 leaves and all of them were were basically from that kind of family network. And so as I started getting to grips with our collection and learning about its history, 
and then learning more about Eggy and kind of Ohio's central role in breaking in the early 20th century through the mid 20th century and then on into the early 21st century. It's kind of like, well, we've got this active educational program here. We've got a, a decent collection and we've got the scope and the will to try to grow this. And maybe it's up to Ohio State to try to undo some of the damage that Ohio has done to a lot of these manuscripts. So that's kind of un been a foundation for my approach to building our collection here is one, trying to find stuff that Farini broke and that Eggy broke, and at least selectively, you know, doing what we can to physically reconstruct some of those and corral loose leaves mm -hmm. and get them into kind of the, the scholarly realm, you know, locate them in a library um, rather than, and it's, I don't have a problem with private collectors at all, but the one problem with private collecting is that you may know the location of it today, but that private collector may sell a fragment tomorrow. Right. Or if that collector passes on, the family may not know what's there and a chunk of a manuscript may fall out of sight for another you know, generation. Mm -hmm. So I had decided that OSU was in a, a particularly good position to start collecting these things, but also with an eye towards international reconstruction efforts. So we don't need to own every leaf from every manuscript we might want to um, reconstruct. People like Lisa Fagan Davis can talk a lot more authoritatively about digital construction than I can. The Fragmentarium Project over in Switzerland. But there are ways now where institutions are really cooperating with each other to digitally reconstruct manuscripts. And so one of the things that I've tried to do at OSU is not just get things related to Eggy, get things related to Farini, but I try to keep on top of as many reconstruction efforts as I can. And if I see leaves that I know other people are working on, I try to acquire those so that we're kind of anchoring those in place for those projects. And then we can mm -hmm. feed in various things. So for instance, Deborah Cashin has been working on the Klanga Talk breviary for quite some time. We didn't have a leaf from that, but one came up on the market and I managed to snag that, mm -hmm. pinning that one in place. So trying to do things like that, Ohio has a lot to repay the manuscript studies community, in my opinion, as a state. And then just as a little teaser, anyone who's going to be in the Columbus area between like mid-March and early August of 2023, please feel free to stop by the, the OSU library because I'll be curating a big exhibition on Ohio and fragmentation. So because of this and because of the nature of Ohio State's collection and how it started, I've just been pretty immersed in the world of fragments and I'm pretty passionate about one, reconstructing what we can to trying to do so in as ethical a way as possible in terms of not contributing to ongoing or new breakings. Mm -hmm. um, and then three, in terms of getting this stuff in front of students. Codices are great. I'm never going to say a bad thing about a codex. Um, but when you're talking about like a student base of undergraduates, you know, manuscripts are hard things. Even the smallest chunk of a manuscript is intimidating. It, it's, it's in foreign languages, even if it's in English or French or Spanish or German, it's going to be a variant of the modern language. So students have that barrier. Typically, though, like at Ohio State, most of our stuff is in Latin. Most students don't know Latin. Handful might have some exposure, but you've already got this language barrier. Then if they happen to be able to make out what the language is, there's the paleographical barrier where the, the style of handwriting is archaic or the, the abbreviation systems used are impenetrable to those who haven't been trained in it. So when you get all of these kind of stumbling blocks with manuscripts and, and you're trying to teach students about things, giving them a codex and asking them to get to work on it is ultra intimidating because now they have an assembly of 200 folios full of stuff that they can't understand. 
So fragments lend themselves really nicely as uh, icebreakers in the classroom. You can give a student a very concrete piece of something that's limited. The scope of it is physically limited. There's only so much that they can spend time analyzing. Another nice thing about fragments, like in the case, for instance, of that Bible that Bruce Farini broke that I've been uh, spending the last decade of my life trying to reconstruct, we have enough leaves of that now where, you know, we have more than enough where every student in a class session can work with a leaf from the Hornby Cockrell Bible. And each leaf is going to be different, but it's all part of the same book. So the design principles and all of these things that we want them to analyze are things that can be done collaboratively in class. Everyone can be looking at things simultaneously. Just earlier this spring, we facilitated an art history survey course where we had multiple rooms of art history students broken up about 20 to 25 in each room. And everyone had a Hornby Bible leaf as their common point of reference. And we had our TAs and we had our our professors all around kind of all teaching simultaneously with this fragment set. As much as I would want that Hornby Cockrell Bible to be intact again and bound in one set of covers, it never should have been broken. The fragmentation of it back in 1981 has in some ways had a, a beneficial effect in that it has created a very real educational opportunity for us at OSU. So I always feel kind of icky talking about the educational potential of fragments because it seems like I'm trying to justify fragmentation. I'm not. But my point of view is you can't undo the original breaking. So make the best of it and realize what opportunities it offers. So fragments are just great. And the two that I've chosen for today are eminently teachable things. They package just so much stuff that provide kind of windows into medieval society, scribal production, book production in general, book use, reader response, how books change. They're not static things. We venerate medieval manuscripts today as these these fantastic artifacts, whether they're kind of grotty or whether they're deluxe. But even the best manuscripts in the Middle Ages, venerated though they may have been, they were not sacrosanct in terms of like, you wouldn't touch them, you wouldn't alter them, you wouldn't change them. And so I love the mutability of manuscripts and fragments often kind of show that that changeability in really, really interesting ways. But I think this is actually the perfect time to let's take a look at these fragments. I want to learn more about these specific objects. Okay, well, I'll, I'll hold this dude up first. So <gasps> look at that. Here, is... I'm hold it up. I'm going to take a screenshot. I'm going to take a screenshot of you. Give you there a sense of the size. There it is. Okay. And then the, and the then, second one is smaller. Oh, it's so little. All right, here. Open it. Open it up. There we go. I will put those up. I will also, we have some nice photos and those are all going to go up um, in the show notes as well. So we'll have lots for you to look at. Um, yeah. So I'll, I'll talk about the, the big one first because I've had that one longer. That was kind of one of the first things that I got. Um, and it just, Everything about it I love. So basically what it is, it's a missile. And a missile is a manuscript that packages all of the texts, the prayers, the chants, the readings, prompts, all of the things that a priest would need in order to celebrate the Mass. Basically the, the central ritual of the church during the Middle Ages. All of the texts you would need to celebrate Mass throughout the year, whether it's with the temporal cycle or those feasts that are movable or that kind of like... Easter, for instance, it's not not always on the same date. So you'll have the temporal cycle celebrating Advent, Epiphany, Pentecost, Lent, Easter season, all of that stuff. 
or the sanctoral cycle. So those specific feast days, like the Feast of St. Nicholas, the Feast of St. Catherine of Alexandria, the translation of the relics of Thomas Becket, you know, those fixed feasts for saints. And missiles packaged all of that text together and were exceptionally important. Now, there was a core component to, in quote, the missile. But one of the things I love about liturgical texts like this is that there is a high degree of variability in them because every church had different ritual practices. They had different saints they might be that, that the church might be dedicated to. They might have local saints that they add to their ritual calendar. So while kind of the core of every missile across uh, Western Europe during the Middle Ages, once the missile kind of emerges as a, as a finished format um, of book, they all share common points, but there's a high degree of variability and missiles can be extremely fun uh, to explore in that way. So I automatically like liturgical texts like that, but then this particular bifolium is fantastic because the recto or the front side of the first folio actually preserves the most standardized sacred kind of component of the missal, the te igitur, or the beginning of the canon of the mass. So the canon of the mass and that whole kind of celebratory portion of the service this is the key moment. This is where transubstantiation takes place. This is where body and blood of Christ are celebrated. And so what I love about this is that this is the most central component, the most sacred component of the Mass. And this is a grotty, dirty manuscript showing that despite the fact that this is an incredibly important and significant moment, it's not above being used. It's not above getting dirty. And this manuscript shows the traffic of celebration over repeated years. The second folio includes, uh, so it's, they're not, when you hold it up, it's like they're not consecutive folios of text. So this was likely the outer bifolium of, of a choir or a gathering of nested bifolia. So we've got the Teigitur component, the canon of the mass on uh, the recto and the verso, the front and back of folio one. Folio two, front and back, preserves what are called sequences or musical texts, but without any music, just kind of the lyrics, so to speak, for a variety of things. So the sequences for the Feast of St. Nicholas, sequences for the dedication of the church, which unfortunately does not identify itself. Uh, the manuscript is likely from the Rhineland. So Eastern France, extreme Western Germany, possibly kind of the Netherlands, that portion of the Netherlands, but it also has sequences for the common of the apostles, things like that. So there's a variety of different kinds of texts here, but it's not just about the, the music lyrics. It's not just about the canon of the mass that's preserved here. Something that I really love is manuscripts like this, and indeed most medieval manuscripts, they're full of color. Mm -hmm. And when I expose students for the first time to manuscripts, there's usually some variation of like, oh my gosh, look at all that red, look at all that red and blue, mm -hmm. whatever the color is it like, isn't that pretty? It's like, this is great. Yeah, have that reaction. But also rubricated text or red text. It is there for decorative purposes, but it's also punctuation. It is helping lay out the text. It's helping the reader navigate things. It's telling you where lists begin and end. It's telling you where sentences begin and end. As you have larger initials, it's, it's giving you a sense that this is the beginning of a, a new major portion of text. But what I really like about this is that some of the rubricated text, this is a script for a performance and it includes stage directions. So a priest is said to celebrate the mass. He's performing the mass. And the rubrics in this specifically say, here you will bow, mm -hmm. here you extend your arms, here you kneel. 
And so you have all of these readings, but you've got the script for gesture, all of these stage directions. In addition to those rubrics, you also have red crosses that are drawn into the, the text itself at key points. And those red crosses, those are also stage directions. Every time the priest reads through this and he sees one of those red crosses, it's a signal to cross himself. Um, so you oh, have right, this... like the sign of the cross, forehead, exactly. chest, and then shoulders, yeah. Exactly. So you've, you've got really kind of a, a play script, so to speak, here. And I, I love this kind of thing in terms of pointing it out to students because we have this sense, like, books are meant to be read. This mm -hmm. is absolutely true. But manuscripts were meant to be read and performed and mm -hmm. gestured. This manuscript doesn't have evidence of this, but there, um, this particular fragment. But the Te'igi tour also often included some sort of drawing or illumination of the crucifixion or of, of Christ. And given that this is the recto, there may have been an illumination of Christ on the verso of the facing page. Mm -hmm. But very often those images are rubbed or kissed as part of the ritual process. So these are books that become very sensuous as well in terms of you're, you're interacting with it. There's a bodily interaction between the reader's own body and the body and the flesh of the book. And so I love that about liturgical manuscripts like this as well. But other components of this manuscript that are great, if, if you look at folio two recto, there is a long moisture stain <laughs> I've been waiting for you to mention this because I keep looking at that thing. What is going on? <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, this is sheer speculation. I haven't done any tests on this. I'm sure that there are scientific tests one could do to try to ID what that residue is. But another component of the performance of the Mass is that wine is involved, water mm -hmm. is involved. So there, mm -hmm. there are uh, water sprinklers, little, like, I forget what they're called, um, is it the, uh, oh, I know what you're talking about. All I can think of is sensor, but that's for sensor's incense. Sensor's not it, the right, yeah. yeah it's it's like a sensor, but with water, with holy I'm gonna, water. I'm going to Google it, I, because this is a great, it's a great word. Aspergillum. <laughs> that's it. So yeah, so they have these various implements that they're using to, to help with this performance and to help with the ritual practice. And sprinkling water is a component of the mass. And so, again, I don't know if this is what's happened here, but... This could be water damage from actually, you know, the missile being sprinkled during, mm -hmm. the, during the mass itself. It could equally just be water damage where, you know, someone spilled something. It was stored kind of in a place where there was a leak. I mean, really, who knows? But in terms of uh, introducing a fragment like this to students, it's a very evocative thing because it helps testify to the fact that this manuscript was alive in a very yeah. real way. This is reminding me a little bit of a conversation we had a couple of weeks ago with um, Michelle Margolis. At, at Columbia, and she was talking, she was showing us a, um, a Haggadah manuscript, which is another kind of manuscript that was made to be used in a very specific way. And on the on the pages that would have been open during the, the Seder meal, there are stains on oh, the nice. pages, <laughs> while there aren't, st aren't, aren't stains on the other pages, which as you know, as the same with the mass, like the, this is like you were eating and like, oh no, you're spilling and and that kind of thing, which it's just, as you say, it's just a great way to see how the manuscripts were used in their own time and how they weren't really yeah. precious about it. Yeah, exactly. So we've got that moisture damage, whatever it is. 
Another feature that I like on Folio 2 is the stuff added in the lower margin on both the front and the back side of that folio. And this, this is an example of you know, what I was saying earlier, where despite the fact that this is a major sacred text, it's a missile, they're not unchangeable. Mm-hmm. Um, so liturgy changes over time. New readings come in, new saints are venerated. They're, they're just new needs for, for uh, ritual practice. Mm-hmm. And often in missiles like this, you will have those newly emerged needs added to the margins. Right. And so what we have here are extra sequences that are added um, specifically for the celebration of the common of martyrs, the celebration for one martyr. So these are kind of catch-all um, sequences where you can dedicate it to any particular martyr or to, or to a group of martyrs. And then on the verso, the sequences are added for the evangelists. Um, so at some stage, um, they realized that the sequences that were packaged in this manuscript just weren't enough mm-hmm. for their ritual needs. Um, so shows that that changeability happens and um, pointing out to students that it's okay, even back then, you know, it was more okay back then for people to write in their books than it is now. It's like, I have a lot of students who are just like, can't possibly write in my book. It's a precious thing. You don't want it to face it. Well, they're defacing in quotes, this missile by adding the text that they need. I, I, I love that kind of changeability and evolution. Yeah. Then if you look at the verso, it's one of my favorite elements to this, and it's that floppy-eared dog pig or whatever it is. <laughs> Looking um, at that. I'm dying to ask about cute. that. He's cute. Yeah, and that is, I, I honestly, I, I think I know what's going on there, but why that particular thing was drawn there, why they chose that, I don't know. But if you look really, really carefully, underneath that little animal, it's very rough parchment. Mm-hmm. So clearly there was an error. There was a scribal mm-hmm. error there and text was erased. And they begin right after the animal. There's an abbreviation, De Martyribus. Um, so this is um, sequences for martyrs comes right after that. And so there's this gap between the end of the text from the first column, which just ends at the very top of the second column, um, impendi to that word. And then a void space, if you imagine that that little doggy's not there. Now, uh, it's medieval scribes um, tended to abhor a vacuum, basically, Mm -hmm. in their textual arrangement. So it would be very, very strange to just kind of see a void space there. And so what I think happened is scribes is like, all right, I got to fill the space with something. (laughs) Typically, you might see just kind of a long line, maybe a slightly more elaborate line filler. Um, but this dog, it serves no purpose in terms of like, it's, it's not thematically oriented to the text. It's not depicting anything that happens in the text. I think it's just this scribe adding his own little touch to it. And I love this because again, coming back to that notion that this is from the central component of the mass, uh, of the missile, basically you've got the Teigitor on one side, all of these sequences for commemorating saints and martyrs and all of this. And then in the middle of it, you just have this dinky little dog with floppy ears. Um, and it, so it shows that there's a real human relationship yeah. between the people making these books, people using these books, and what the actual content is. And I think, well, I don't think, I know from my interactions with students over so many years that there's this idea that the, the medieval church is just this stern monolith, mm-hmm. that there's no flexibility, there's no creativity, there's no fun in it. And I'm not saying that this is a fun manuscript in, in any sort of like specific way, but it's a flexible manuscript and it's got everything from the formality of the canon of the mass all the way to a random doodled dog. 
and it, with textual revisions, with uh, maybe an overly enthusiastic priest spilling water on this. It's just everything about it is evocative and is teachable and is beautiful. And I would, in terms of, uh, I've had students ask me this question because I let them know that this is my fragment. And like, well, wouldn't you like to, I've had a number ask me this, like, wouldn't you like to have like a really deluxe illuminated leaf or something like that? And I say, hands down, no. I am not interested in ever owning anything like that. Don't get me wrong, they're beautiful. If you're an art historian, especially, you can teach the heck out of a, a fragment like that. But for me, it's it's like a, a fragment like that becomes a painting on a wall. Whereas this remains something. It was a utilitarian text back in its day when it was created. And I'm able to kind of continue its life as a utilitarian text by passing it around to students. I wouldn't feel quite as comfortable doing that with a, a deluxe manuscript. So I thought it's a quick intro to this guy. Oh, one other thing that I, that I really like on the at the top left of the back side of folio one there is a two-line red initial q and there's oh. just this oh. little oh, face in there of this most speculative of priests maybe i don't know <laughs> kind of like given the text the side eye and i really like that also it's just a little yeah. a little little flavor for the manuscript so this thing don't know anything about its provenance other than the previous owner um, who had this was a private collector who died, I think it was around 2014 or 2015. And I don't know where he acquired it from. And I don't know its passage through time. But yeah, it's just this eminently teachable thing. Yeah. We can move on to the second one if you want, or if you have yeah. questions about this one or your own observations. Because one of the things I really like is like, what do you guys see in this? Well, what I see is just a really, I don't know if I'd call it well-loved, but well-used, very alive object. It's wonderful. Mm -hmm. I can say it's, it's well-loved well now. now. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> it's just so rich in all of the hands that have touched it. I think that thinking about, you know, what you said, Eric, about a, a fancy illuminated leaf versus something like this. And I don't, I don't want to put them up against each other because they're just really, really yeah. different things. But one yeah. of the things that this one does and other, other books and leaves like this is that it really reminds you of the humanity. And you used this mm -hmm. word earlier too, that like people in the middle ages, I don't want to say they were just like us, but they yeah. were humans the way we were human. And you know, and the richness that Lindsay sees, like this is also part of it. And the little the little faces and the dog, you know, and the marking things out and the erasing and, and all of that. It's sort of like, these were just people just doing their things and they were different things than we do now because, you know, because the context is different. But, you know, we're all humans. And I just, I love that really. So I love stuff like that. So that's all I'm gonna say. Yep. Nope. That's that's exactly what drew me to this uh, as well. With just the endless opportunities to kind of experience, be be another one of the things I absolutely love about being a manuscript teacher, scholar, etc., is constantly knowing whether it's a, a, a conscious realization or just this passive realization as I'm working with these things or presenting them to different audiences that I'm just the latest person in this mm -hmm. continuity of people going back to the manuscripts creation. Um, and when I say creation, I don't just mean the scribal process, but the person who slaughtered the animal, mm -hmm. bled it, drained it, 
scraped it, you know, all the whole process. There are so many hands that have touched this. Mm -hmm. And my hands and my students' hands are all part of that history now for this manuscript. And I really kind of love being in a position to be part of that and to facilitate others becoming a part of that continuity. Yeah. That's so great. So I would like to I would like to see the other one too. The second, okay, the second so one you have. The other one is uh, much smaller than the missile. And this is, uh, I said earlier, it's uh, from a text called the Sumila Conradi, which was uh, kind of a compilation of moral theological topics. It was written in the 13th century. It's been ascribed to a guy named Conrad Huxter, particularly popular text in German speaking lands. And there are roughly around 70 recorded copies of this that still survive. What I love about this, though, is that it's very typical of probably my favorite genre of medieval manuscript, which is broadly defined pastoral care manuscripts. Manuscripts and texts that packaged information that would help priests in ministering to their flocks, ministering mm -hmm. to lay people. So pastoral care could incorporate uh, moral theology and kind of texts on the vices and virtues and interpreting sin and virtue and all of this stuff so that priests had a complete awareness and understanding of all of the different components of vice and virtue, and they could then interact with their parishioners in a deeper way, in a more authoritative way to let them know, you know, what their sins were, how to remedy those sins, things like that. Pastoral care might also include simple catechetical stuff like the uh, teaching them the Paternoster, the Ave Maria. So the, the Lord's Prayer, etc. might have the Ten Commandments listed, the Corporal Acts of Mercy, the 15 Days of Doom, mm -hmm. all of the nice mnemonic texts. And while the Sumila Conradi is what this manuscript is, the, what this particular fragment preserves is what was likely the very final bifolium of the text, just a, a singular bifolium. Maybe there was stuff... I, actually, I don't think there was anything... Um, in between these two folios, because right. the text is continuous from the end of the of one verso to two recto. But basically, the Sumila Conradi is only on the front side of folio one. And so we have the very end of the text, followed by paratext, a table of contents for the entire manuscript, which is really great, because I also love paratext. Mm -hmm. It's very accessible stuff to teach uh, students with. But when you get into folio one verso, and then two recto and two verso, those would have been left blank when this manuscript was first completed, when the sumula was actually done and it was packaged. And in little small format manuscripts like this, they're typically designed um, in this kind of format because they need to be portable. Very often the types of people who were consuming manuscripts like this were Dominicans and Franciscans, itinerant preachers. So they needed small format stuff that they would carry around with them, making their jobs easier as they went from town to town preaching. Any spare space on pages was very often used by the people who owned these books back then because it might have been the only extra parchment that they, they may have had access to. So they tend to add a lot of things to it over time. And indeed, the final three pages of this bifolium are multiple hands. So multiple mm -hmm. owners have done this or multiple users have done this, and they've added all sorts of really fascinating texts to this. And so we've got the end of the Sumila Conradi. But in addition to that, um, I'll just run down this list that I wrote up for myself because I can never memorize the whole thing. But we've got the end of the Sumila Conradi, the full table of contents on re the Recto Folio 1. The other texts that have all been added include a brief section that are notes on how to extend a sermon's theme. 
So basically how to add divisions to it to, so that you can start kind of every sermon starts with a theme, typically like a gospel reading or an epistle reading, some sort of uh, biblical reading. And then during this period, we're firmly into what's called the period of the modern sermon or the scholastic sermon. And these were heavily schematized texts where you would start with your theme, you'd have a restatement of that theme, you'd then introduce typically three or four divisions of that theme. And then within each of those divisions, you would introduce multiple subdivisions. And then each one of those subdivisions would have fruits or the lessons, the final Mm -hmm. things that the listener to the sermon is supposed to take away. And so there's a little brief passage here offering advice on how to extend the theme or basically how to kind of create some of these divisions. Another text that was added in here are indulgences that were instituted by various ecclesiastical figures. And this is a really interesting thing here because of the types of people who are mentioned. So Ptolemaeus of Sarda, he was Bishop of Albania. Insularius of Budwa, he was the Bishop of Montenegro. The Bishop of Strasbourg is mentioned here. So this could potentially suggest a circulating area for this book of kind of more central and south central Europe, verging on in towards what we now think of as kind of the former Yugoslavia for potential uh, and Hungary for potential um, circulation of this. But who's to say um, I found other examples of this text in other other manuscripts. So uh, other things that are included in here, the seven words Christ said from the cross. So this is a typical type of text that a priest could have used to help extrapolate a theme. Got a distinction at the top left corner of the front side of folio two. And what a yeah. distinction is, it's like tree diagrams. And in this case, you have different theological themes that are being introduced and then kicked out into subdivisions. Again, something that can be ported into a sermon. We then have the seven words spoken by the Blessed Virgin Mary. We have a brief life of the Virgin Mary that was uh, cribbed from a text written by St. Jerome. There's also a brief sermon on the dedication of a church. Uh, there's You flip over onto the verso and you've got the conclusion of that sermon. You've got an abbreviated list of the corporal acts of mercy or those things that every good Christian should do, such as like visiting people in prison, visiting the sick, things like that. Um, there's a brief paragraph on whether offering alms uh, is salutary for the souls of meretricious women or prostitutes. So can prostitutes benefit by giving alms? There's also a description of the sin of usury, so don't charge interest. And then perhaps uh, one of my favorite things is there's a brief little medical commonplace that talks about the sense of smell and concludes with a little word or a little uh, phrase that coughs are caused by cold feet so you have this <laughs> weird random assembly of all sorts of texts that uh-huh. are practical in all sorts of different ways for the traveling preacher that would have owned this, or I should say traveling preachers, because again, all of these texts uh, were added over time mm-hmm. uh, by different hands. And I haven't really gone through to officially look and identify the number of hands, but there are at least three different hands operating here. So this kind of manuscript, I really, really, really like because while the first folio reflects a very established, uh, well-respected and used text, mm-hmm. the rest of this bifolium is just full of one, two, three people's needs, textual needs, mnemonic needs, things like that. And so you're getting this slice of life in a completely different way than you do in that missile fragment that we looked at. So that kind of breaks this guy down. The, the small format is evocative for its portability, gives you a right. sense of how it would have been used, et cetera. 
Yeah. And it's an interesting contrast with the missile because the missile would have been used in the church, larger, more impressive. Whereas this one, it's more like something you would want to slip in your bag as you're like (laughs) traveling around. Uh, So that's interesting. I also want to make sure to say that we have, or Eric has provided us with some very nice images showing these leaves and where all the texts are. So you'll be able to have a look at this and you can see yourself that yes, all of these, even if you can't read Latin, it's really clear that these are written by different people. Like even if you don't know paleography, you can tell (laughs) that there's different people who are writing. Yeah, and this, this one, man, I just fell in love with this one at first sight. I was over in London in January of 2019 to see the Anglo-Saxon Kingdoms manuscript exhibit at the British Library and figured, well, while I'm over there, I'm going to go visit dealers. And so I knocked on the door at Quaritch and Alex Day welcomed me in and then just dropped a stack of fragments mm-hmm. in front of me um, and went through to see what he had. And this guy popped up and it's like, must have have to have this. There are so many ways I can teach with this. There are so many hours, endless hours of fun that I can have in my home office sitting at my desk, you know, just working through what all of this is. And yeah, it was one of those things where I I don't know if other curators, other librarians have said this to you uh, before, but it's, there's like a spidey sense. I think I've talked about this with other curators. You kind of get this spidey sense sometimes when you see something, you don't know what it is, but you know, Mm -hmm. it's it. It's got everything yeah. you need. And as soon as I uncovered this in the stack, it was like, okay, that one is going back to the United States with me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this, this no. one's not disappearing. It's going to get used. So Yeah, it's great. And it's another, you said this already, but I'm going to say it again and maybe I'll edit it out in post. But the humanity of it, you know, yeah. like, I just, I just like it a lot. I can, I can see yeah. why you why you wanted to take it. Yeah, but I get just the little medical commonplace. It just ends with, de frigore pedum nascitur tussis. <laughs> Coughs are born from cold feet. <laughs> I mean, they're not, you know, he's not wrong. <laughs> it's yeah, like typical, exactly. typical medieval medicine. Like, it's not exactly wrong. Like, sure, from a certain point of view. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> but in addition to it being like this little medical thing, kind of like little folksy medical commonplace, it's like this is exactly the kind of thing that preacher may have incorporated into a, an exemplum, you know, a little illustrative story to get a, a point across. These are all little like exemplar yeah. folk tales, miracle stories, saints' lives, all these things. And they have this kind of slice of life detail. Um, in them often. And so Mm -hmm. I love that also where everything that's in here is the text that it is, but also can double as potential fodder for sermons or potential fodder for the confessional booth or potential fodder for a personal conversation that a a priest is having with a parishioner who maybe is going through a tough time or needs advice about something. This is all practical. And I I love that about texts like this. So those are my two favorite manuscripts. (laughs) I love it. This may not make the cut for the episode, but listen to you. My grandfather was an Episcopal priest. And I'm just thinking about all of the little notes that he would write in his journals and his little spare books of psalms. And it's it's just the same thing. People have been doing it for ages and ages. It's 
connection that you have with somebody who has been dead now for hundreds of years. And yet here we are looking at this, appreciating this thing and the thought that went into it. Yeah, and it speaks to Dot's humanity point. You know, it really highlights that. And I do think that sometimes it is fruitful to say they were just like us. Of course they weren't. But I think, you know, in this case, the story that you've just told, Lindsay, it's like what he did could easily have been done by the priest who owned this. You know, they're doing the same thing centuries apart. So it's, I I do like that. And, And these kinds of things do provide very tangible, tactile bridges for students and the general public to kind of understand the Middle Ages in a slightly different way and to humanize it. Lindsay has a question that she often asks, and I wonder if she's, do you, do you want to ask I'm your question? I'm ask my question. It's actually sort of, it's, it's sort of a two-part question. And with every guest, I always want to know what brought you into this world? What made you go, ah, manuscripts, that's for me. And the other part of the question is, if you could spend time with any manuscript or book in the world, it could be one that you've met, could be a new one what would it be and why okay so the first one just because or the second part of your question just because it's a really easy one for me to answer i would love to have a glorious long date with the codex amiatinus (laughs) you are our first guest who's like this is an easy question to answer everybody else is like you're making me like a child Nope. Um, so I, I love medieval Bibles. And in fact, yesterday I spent all day up at Baldwin Wallace University. They asked me to come up to look at 13th century Bible that they've got that sat in a vault that remained unopened from like the 1980s until 2012. Oh, wow. um, so really cool thing. But any, anyhow, the reason that I mentioned that is the Codex Amiatinus is this giant Bible produced in the north of England in, what was it, the 8th century. And it's basically the Ur text manuscript for virtually the entire Western Bible manuscript tradition from that point on. If you, like, in a very literal way, you can kind of trace the later medieval Bible tradition directly back to that. But if you want to get creative, you could easily make an argument that every last medieval Bible manuscript in Western Europe can be traced back in a family tree to the Codex Amiatinus and the two now lost Bibles that were produced alongside of it. So that's like really oversimplifying and overstating the case, but I don't think it's overstating it by too much. The other thing that's really neat about it is this, this is a Bible that was produced in the north of England, but it is essentially a Southern Italian Bible from the, what was it, the sixth century? Because it's, it was, we think it was copied directly from a, a manuscript called the Codex Grandior, which was at the monastery slash academic academy of Cassiodorus. And that Presumably, I mean, so the the speculation goes, was sent over to England very, very early on, possibly as part of the first or one of the earliest missions to England in this 6th, 7th century. So it's not just kind of the Ur text, it's also a direct link between Northern England in the early medieval period to the Mediterranean region. And I love the fact that this testifies to the fact that books traveled wide distances at a time when people... Nowadays, tend to think everyone just stayed at home, didn't have, you know, cruise ships, didn't have airlines, things like that. But it's like, no, people really, really got around and and they they took books with them. And the other thing is, it's just a absolute unit (laughs) of a book. It's it's monstrous. (laughs) And when I turned the corner at the aforementioned British Library exhibit that I went to in 2019, you turn the corner in that exhibit and see the Amiatina sitting there, it is just 
strikingly beautiful and huge and monolithic and everything. So I'd want to spend time with that. In terms of how I came to this end of life, really Conan the Barbarian, Conan the Sumerian. Excellent. 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 Yeah. So (laughs) read my first Conan story when I was in fifth grade and that led me into Dungeons and Dragons and all of this stuff. Then I went to college and I, I actually went to Penn and I was going to do sports medicine. You know, I was a football player at the time, and I couldn't envision a life where I wasn't around a football team or athletics in some way. I knew I wasn't going to play pro or anything, so it's like, let's go into medicine, become a trainer, orthopedic surgeon, something like that. And then my freshman year happened and quickly realized that organic chemistry was not in my future. The world of calculus and other forms of advanced math were not friendly to me. I managed to pass and everything, but I I just couldn't imagine spending all of the time I was going to need to spend to master all of that. It just didn't feel right. So I bounced around for a year, year and a half. Uh, My buddies called me occasionally man of many majors because I explored so many different things. And then I was sitting there um, trying to figure out what my course load was going to be for second semester sophomore year. And I came across this intro to medieval literature listing and it was like, oh, hey, Conan, you you used to read that stuff all the time, knowing that, of course, that wasn't medieval lit, but it's like, oh, we'll see where some of the inspiration for these kinds of things came from. And I enrolled in that class and kind of that was all she wrote. I worked hard that semester, really, really, really hard, but it didn't feel like work. And that was the first step for me. And my professor who's a man uh, named David Boyd, monstrously huge influence on my life because he really took an interest in every one of his students. And in the survey course at the end of the semester, he, he met with every student individually to go over their final paper, their final exam. And I don't remember exactly what he said to me, but I do remember the substance. And it was so positive. And it was my first truly positive academic experience at the university. I remember the six block walk home from that meeting and my feet didn't touch the ground. And I was like, I know what I want to do now. So I very quickly declared a major in English, medieval uh, lit uh, as a focus, went off to grad school, et cetera. I did not focus on manuscripts in graduate school. I was very much a pastoral care, scholastic theology person. And then I won't give you the full career history, but you know the vagaries of the academic job market are always and always have been difficult. I've found myself at the time thinking that, well, I guess I'm backing into the library profession and took a job and then realized like the promise held mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. the library career. I'm so glad that I'm in libraries as opposed to an English department. There's so much more flexibility. There's so much, you just have power over to impact and affect a lot more change. And then when I got to OSU, it's a library with faculty track appointments. And so I needed to come up with a research agenda. And I didn't know what to do. And then we had a ton of fragments. And so I got into manuscripts and focusing on fragments largely because I desperately needed and wanted to get tenure. And (laughs) as I got further and further into that collection, it was just all the possibilities came out. And uh, while I still kind of do pastoral care stuff, uh, read a ton about it, do some projects on it, things like that on the side, I'm thoroughly a manuscripts guy. I love every minute of it now. So that's basically how I, I... got to being a complete dork and talking about these. <laughs> That's a great story. Thank you for sharing it. Yeah. 
Yeah, and we're we're happy to have you in in curator manuscripts people world. And I can definitely, you know, I feel you on the. I'm really glad I'm in a library. Yeah, yeah, it's. I don't know it's fun. It's. I, I think about how nice it is to be a curator who, on the one hand, has collection development responsibilities, and then on the other hand, has public outreach and teaching responsibilities, mm-hmm. and. What a powerful combination that is because you can create your own program, essentially. You're, yeah. there's, yeah. there's no barrier between you as teacher and the collections. It's like you're it. And mm-hmm. so everything is 24-7 access, basically. Not quite, but it's just a real position of privilege, I think, that I'm very grateful for to have the public side of my job inform my collecting for the mm-hmm. university and then have my collecting for the university be able to shape and constantly evolve kind of the outreach and the teaching. And um, I've given talks on this before at various conferences, but I call it like building the perpetual motion machine where Mm -hmm. you can't get the support to build collections until you demonstrate that you have an audience and you've got a program, um, but you can't get the audience in the program unless you have the materials. So how do you get that balance? And you start chugging along and then it's like, okay, now I need to like get it going faster and faster. So I'm going to take some of the content that uh, students have done and some of the, the programs that we've done. And now I'm going to start marketing that to donors. And then mm-hmm. you get added gas that are at, that's added by donors, which then allows you to take your collecting to the next step, which then helps you do more and more on the programming. So it's been over the last decade at Ohio State, this kind of starting really at zero miles per hour and just kind of going, shifting gears and getting in, you know, higher and higher now. And in the last, you know, couple of years, I really think if we're not in fifth gear, we're definitely in fourth gear because we're getting a lot of donor support now where they're coming to me specifically saying, I want to give you X amount of money, but you have to spend it on manuscripts. Right. And it's like, oh, go twist my arm. Um, <laughs> like it's really, really good. And, and I don't, I've, I've been involved with that, but I, I really credit the success of that to the students I've had through the years who fully buy into the experiential learning side that we try to cultivate here at OSU and like fostering them a sense of ownership. Uh, There's nothing better in my opinion than starting a term in manuscript studies with students afraid to touch a manuscript in that first session. And then halfway through the semester when they've started embarking on their, their term project, they're getting more and more familiar. They adopt a manuscript from our collection and then by the time they give their presentations at the end of term, they're no longer not just afraid. Uh, they're not afraid to touch the manuscript, but they're, they're saying my <laughs> manuscript. Mm-hmm. Like getting that and seeing that transition from like deer in the headlights, I don't want to break or rip or, you know, whatever, this precious, precious thing to them mm-hmm. than just having a, an ownership claim over these is really good. And so that translates and has translated really well in ongoing conversations with donors where our students actually testify to kind of the power of these these artifacts. Like really, in some cases, the transformative power for them, because I've had some students who, you know, they enrolled in a manuscripts course not knowing what the heck they wanted to do, kind of like my experience with the medieval lit course. End of the semester, it's like, I want to be a curator. I want to get a PhD in manuscript studies. I want to do this. I want to do that. Yeah. And then at least the next four or five years of their life are set. And it's it's a really nice thing to see manuscripts translate into opportunity, into eagerness, into experience like that. Yeah. That sounds so satisfying. I love that for you. 
Yeah, y'all, y'all, cool. just, y'all have the best jobs ever. You really do. We, we're not going to argue with you. you. Really do. It's, exactly. a great, it's a great job. And I also love doing this podcast because I love I love being able to talk to to Eric and to other people who, who do this kind of work because it's so it's so fun to hear your experiences and you know and what you love about it and all of that. So yeah. I yeah. So thank you, Eric. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Inside My Favorite Manuscript. Please, if you enjoy the podcast, leave a rating or a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Our website is insidemyfavoritemanuscript.tumblr.com, and there you'll find posts for all our episodes and a link where you can contact us directly. We'll be back again soon with another conversation about manuscripts and why we love them.